0: This program is a paid commercial announcement from Jacob Media Partners and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Your radio doctor does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on your radio doctor. Always consult your own physician. Today's program has been pre-recorded.
1: When it comes to my health care, I want choices, like more doctors and hospitals, so I get to see who I want. With Independence Blue Cross, I don't have to compromise when it comes to my care. Independence makes it easy. Their online tools help me manage my plan and even keep my health on track with programs designed for my well-being. And with free 24-7 virtual doctor visits, I get easy access to care when I need it, saving me time. Enroll at IBX.com by December 15th to begin coverage on January 1st.
0: Talk Radio 1210. WPHT, WPHT, HD, WOGL, HD3, Philadelphia. From the
1: Cherry Hill Volvo Studios, where relationships matter.
0: Your health determines your life, your longevity, and your happiness. Let your radio doctor lead the way with your medical education. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie.
2: Good morning, and welcome to your radio doctor. I'm your host, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Well, more than a year and nine months have passed, and COVID continues to keep us on alert. Fortunately, we live in a city with some of the best medical talent on the planet. Here with us today are two giants of medicine in Philadelphia. First... Dr. Neil Flammenberg, Chair of Medical Oncology at Jefferson, whose research offers great promise for a new treatment to fight COVID. Then we'll hear from Dr. John Zurlo, Chief of the Division of Infectious Disease at Jefferson, who'll bring us up to date with current treatments for outpatients, hospital patients, and some exciting news about potential oral medications to battle COVID. It is an honor to call them my colleagues. Dr. Neil Flammenberg, Professor of Medicine and Chief of Department of Medical Oncology at Thomas Jefferson University. He's also the Deputy Director of the Sidney Kimmel Cancer Center, which has a distinguished NCI designation. A respected leader in his field, his rich profile also includes Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, where he trained and was an attending for several years. Welcome, Neil.
1: Thanks, Marianne, thank you for having me. Well, we're so fortunate to have you. Neil.
2: let's start with what T cells are and the role they play in our immune system.
1: So T cells or T lymphocytes are white blood cells. Uh, We're focused on them now because they're the cells that can kill in cells that are infected by a virus, in this case, specifically the COVID virus. Um, Ordinarily, uh, T lymphocytes uh, recognize these cells and kill them off. These cells that are infected become factories to make more copies of the virus. Once they're killed off, the body will replace them with uh, healthy cells. You can sort of think of the outcome of uh, COVID-19 infection as a race between the virus's ability to make more copies of itself and the body's ability to make enough T cells to eliminate the infected cells. People who are older, immune-suppressed, have a number of chronic medical conditions, they may have the later diminished ability to respond to the virus. For that reason, we've come up with a product known as TVGN 489, where we're giving cells from the lab to directly fight the infection and also allow, um, as part of it, the body's immune system to also catch up and provide longer term protection.
2: So, that explains how a cancer specialist like you might come up with a treatment for an infection because our natural T cells and antibodies, we'll talk about antibodies in a moment, fight against anything foreign, cancer cells, infection, toxins. So we see that if the silver lining to COVID, just like there was a silver lining to HIV, we learn more and more about the immune system and and use it to fight anything that's uh, foreign to our bodies. So Neil, um, where do you retrieve these T cells that you use in therapy?
1: Um, They're obtained from healthy donors who previously had a COVID infection and have successfully recovered, typically younger people. Uh, The donors are very carefully screened as a transplant donor would be to ensure that there's nothing that can potentially be transmitted through the cells or through the blood from which we get them.
2: So we talk about antibodies and people are familiar with the expression monoclonal antibodies. Let's talk about what an antibody does, what it is, and how your treatment is different from the monoclonal antibody infusions.
1: Sure. So uh, antibodies are proteins that are made by other immune cells called B cells, as opposed to T cells. They're a normal part of our immune response. Um, we think of them as being shaped like the letter Y. The, the two top parts of the Y are like two hands that grab onto their target, but the hands are very, very specific in what they can grab onto. Once the antibodies bind to their targets, that typically sets in motion a process by which the target is eliminated by the body.
2: That's probably the clearest explanation I've ever heard of an antibody because there are so many parts of the immune system. It's, it's beautiful, it's fascinating, but it's hard for people to keep track, especially our listeners. So a T cell is like a killer cell. It cleans up trash if the, if the virus is, Hurt or damage the cell. That T cell is going to clean up that dead cell, and the body will make a new healthy cell. B cells, another type of white cells, make these proteins called antibodies that kill the virus. Right? One, the T cell kill the the dead cell or <laughs> clean it up, and antibodies kill the virus that's causing all the problems. So, how is your treatment different from monoclonal? Mono means one site, right? One target.
1: Yeah. So antibodies can recognize virus that's free, that's moving around outside a cell. But once the cell is infected, the antibodies really can't see inside. And that's where the T cells come in to get rid of the infection. Um, There are a couple of differences between what we're doing and the monoclonal antibody therapy that is available. First of all, monoclonal antibodies is currently used have a single target from COVID, that being the spike protein. Uh, Our T cells, on the other hand, are directed at a mix of seven different targets from all over the virus, not just the spike protein. And that makes it harder for them to be rendered ineffective by mutations such as have been seen in the Delta or Omicron variants. The other difference, as you alluded to, is that antibodies recognize large structures. So if there's a change... Um, elsewhere that affects the protein shape, it may still mess up the way the antibody binds. T cells, by recognizing little pieces of protein, are uh, unaffected by a mutation unless the mutation is directly in that small little piece.
2: Mm -hmm. And how do you know that your, your treatment is going to remain effective against, say, the Delta variant or Omicron?
1: Well, we've looked in the uh, National Library of Medicine database. There are actually over 3,400 Delta variant sequences there. Um, The seven targets that I alluded to are preserved in 98.8 to 100% of those Delta isolates. We also haven't seen any of these targets lost in Omicron in a much smaller amount of information thus far. But our experience with Delta makes us confident that our analysis of the Omicron targets will also hold up over time.
2: It's incredible. 98.9% to 100% so far successful. So your goal, really, you want to provide a treatment for those high-risk patients that probably have a reduced immune response and go right to the finish line, give them T cells that start the process of protection. Any remarkable side effects so far with the patients you've treated, Neil? Um,
1: So... um, Thus far, we really have seen no side effects. I would indicate that these kinds of cells have been used in other settings other than COVID before. Also very safe. Um, For this reason, since we've seen nothing, we've been given approval to move to the next phase of the trial that will use a higher number of cells.
2: That's awesome. So I know your numbers are small so far, but so far so good. And you're noticing your patients start to improve within two days after the cells are given. So um, we have to keep watching. Tell us quickly who is eligible for this study and how they contact you.
1: Sorry, The trial is open to um, patients with COVID who are at high risk for serious complications. And this includes people who are over the age of 65 or have any number of chronic conditions, including diabetes, high blood pressure, heart, lung, liver, kidney disease, um, obesity. And if people are interested, they can reach us uh, by calling our uh, hotline at 267-239-6281.
2: And I know you're also hoping that donors will come forward, relatively young and otherwise healthy patients who have had COVID, we've recuperated, they can call that same number. We'll repeat that, 267 239 6281. Dr. Neil Flammenberg, you are a superstar. I am so impressed with the work you've done. And it just shows persistence pays because we talked the other day and you actually look back to your years at Memorial Sloan Kettering when you worked with T-cells back then and you're completing your circle, right?
1: Uh, it's been strange how it's come full circle, but it's been uh, you know, a very exciting experience and we're very hopeful that uh, this will be useful to people.
2: I'm thinking Nobel Prize Palooza. Uh, but for our listeners, 267-239-6281. Neil, thank you so much. Continue thank you, your Mary. great work. Take thank care. You. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. If you have a question for the medical mailbag, just send a note to doctor at yourradiodoctor.net. And... Welcome back to your radio doctor. We are so happy to be joined by Dr. John Zerlo, the W. Paul and Ida H. Havens Professor and Chief of Infectious Diseases at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital and the Chair of the Jefferson Enterprise COVID-19 Task Force. John, being Chief of the Infectious D- Disease Division is a 24 hour day task. Then we add the task force for an enterprise with 18 hospitals, Thank you for working so hard as a leader in the fight against COVID at Jeff and across Philadelphia.
0: Well, its um, I I guess I'd call it a pleasure. It is my pleasure. It's certainly my responsibility. It's my job to do, so uh, here I am.
2: Well, thank you. We've been anxious to bring you back for an update because you have some very promising uh, details you wanna share with us. So let's start with sort of clarifying the confusion that's out in the public about ivermectin. What can you tell us about that?
0: Well, you know, ivermectin, and and other medications that that came along early in the pandemic, uh, including hydroxychloroquine, certainly had promise in terms of their uh, some data we had from the laboratory, and then in maybe some early uh, small clinical studies to suggest that it might actually offer some benefit, particularly early on in the treatment of COVID. And it has been studied. Well, both of those drugs have been studied really extensively. And if you look critically at the studies, if you look at the the well-controlled studies, um, we don't really have any clear signal of, of efficacy. And so, um, believe me, I, I, we would all love a simple, sure. inexpensive medication to use that would change the course of the pandemic. But I, I'm afraid I, I just don't see it, quite frankly.
2: No. But out of all fairness to the drug, it is indicated for certain Uh, conditions in human beings, certainly parasites like the roundworm or, uh, you know, certain parasites that people can pick up. And if you take it because it's appropriate, you will not turn into Mr. Ed, the talking horse. (laughs) You know, you hear people on TV say, well, it's a dewormer. for But just like other drugs that are different in pets and humans, like ketamine, we use that in the GI lab sometimes, Uh, but it's a different dose. And I would never give my dog a human strength Advil. But we move on to talk about when a patient is first diagnosed. What treatment do you recommend outpatients? I know they're all different, but tell us about that.
0: Well, uh, first of all, on the positive side, most people, most people who get COVID, get ill and and they get over it, and that's the good thing on the on the good side. On the on the negative side, of course, a significant proportion of people get sick enough that they really require medical attention, often hospitalization, and they can get really sick. Um, the reality, I think, is the key is, is trying to get get diagnosed early. I think early diagnosis is really an important uh, important thing. So if you've had a close contact with somebody with COVID, if you develop symptoms that could be COVID, it's really important to get diagnosed early, especially if you have underlying medical problems, if you're older, 65, 75, and above, um, because we do have treatment that, that could be Uh, prevent people from getting seriously ill. Just as an aside, the most important treatment, the best treatment we have by far is vaccination. Now we're going through this stage of now two two vaccines, the, the initial series, followed now by boosters. We think boosters are very important, but vaccines by far and away are the most effective treatment we have. But should you get sick, should you get COVID, a breakthrough infection from COVID, especially if you're in one of those categories, older underlying medical problems, then we have these these monoclonal antibodies that can be used to hopefully reduce the chances of getting very sick.
2: Mm -hmm. And we were just clarifying during conversation (coughs) with Neil that an antibody is a protein made by a certain type of white blood cells that aim to kill the virus. Certain white cells uh, clear up the cells that are infected, their T cells, but B cells make these proteins or antibodies. And that's what you collect from people that are Recovered from COVID? Yes. You want to tell us a little bit about monoclonal antibodies?
0: Well, in reality, they've been manufactured in the lab. Um, we had, of course, tried to um, to use what's called convalescent plasma, using plasma rich with antibodies from people who've had COVID and recovered. But the reality is, we we've used. We've studied those antibodies and and really manufactured in the lab specific antibodies that that really target specifically various parts of COVID. And that's where they come from. And there have been a variety of manufacturers who've developed monoclonal antibodies to treat COVID.
2: That's a nice, clear explanation. So you're going to aim to use the monoclonal antibodies at people with, as you said, early symptoms, um, but who have risk factors that might lead them to severe disease, say uh, the things we're used to hearing now, diabetes, obesity, heart disease, liver, kidney disease, or maybe those people that had less than an optimal response to vaccination, yes?
0: Yeah, and that that's another group, which is people who have some degree of immune compromise, Your immune system is compromised, sometimes because of cancers, sometimes because of transplants, sometimes because they're getting medications that are designed to uh, to tamp down the immune system to reduce inflammation for people with diseases like, for example, Crohn's disease or uh, lupus and so forth. So they, we wouldn't expect that they would have as good a response to vaccination. And in turn, because of their underlying disease, they're more susceptible to severe complications from COVID.
2: Makes sense. And then we're going to add in there just to uh, drive the message home that just age We start to see a decreased response from the immune system, wouldn't you say, gradually?
0: Yeah, that's that's true as a general statement, Mm -hmm. but we certainly experienced that with COVID. Older people, especially before vaccination, they were at really the highest risk of of severe complications. Um, You know, really, especially as people really get over the age of sixty or so, and it really just increases exponentially. The older the uh, older people are. Mm
2: -hmm. So, what advice do you have for people? When they are become symptomatic or they, their positive uh, test returns, what can they do to stay out of the hospital?
0: Well, number one, first and foremost, is contact their physician, whoever their provider is. Let them know about the positive test, if they've had it done someplace other than their physician's office, and, and their physician will presumably guide them toward um, the possibility of receiving, for example, monoclonal antibody therapy.
2: Absolutely, and telehealth has helped keep patients in touch with their docs without exposing other people in offices or public transportation. And now we have tests that can be performed more rapidly and and test at home, so that's been helpful. What symptoms, and and the spectrum of symptoms is uh, vast, but what symptoms should prompt a patient to come to the emergency department?
0: I think the symptom that's most worrisome is when people develop shortness of breath. Um, remember, the, the real challenge of COVID is that, it, and its real target organ that causes the most trouble is the lungs. And when it causes enough inflammation in the lungs, then of course, we can't, we can't exchange oxygen and carbon dioxide appropriately. And the blood oxygen level drops and people develop shortness of breath. I think when people start to develop short of, shortness of breath, that's most certainly a signal that they need to get seen.
2: hmm And I know the trick with COVID has been this sneaky... Um, acuteness, that a person's coasting and they don't feel they're not retaining CO2 or there's some trick to it that when it hits, it hits acutely and quickly. Yes?
0: Yeah, that is the real challenge. So I think if for anybody who's in one of these risk groups with these medical problems or age or immunosuppression, they really need to be uh, very, very careful and, and they should be certainly in touch with their with their provider um, you know, and 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 uh, really uh, present at the earliest with the earliest signs of shortness of breath.
2: Mm-hmm. And people should know maybe they already have a pulse ox, which we know is a little plastic clip that you put on your finger, and you can detect uh, the amount of oxygen, the percentage of oxygen in your blood, and if it dips below ninety four percent, you need to be seen in person. But do not depend on a uh, mobile phone. To detect your oxygen level, yes.
0: Yeah, I, I honestly I don't know how accurate the the phone apps are. I mean, I think they've become much better, but uh, you know the the uh, oxygen saturation meters they've become pretty inexpensive. They can they're easily easily uh, obtained, mm-hmm. and they're pretty accurate. Mm-hmm.
2: So if a patient has symptoms severe enough to be admitted to the hospital. I'm sure there's a protocol that you start. Do you ever give them something as soon as they get to the ear, the emergency department, or how do you approach those patients?
0: Well, once again, the important part of is is getting treated early. You know, those people who are destined to become really sick from COVID, you know, at some point it, it becomes I'm not gonna say too late, but it becomes very late in the game that The the problems that develop, the inflammation that develop in the lungs, it's really, really hard to reverse, quite frankly. So, the earlier that people get diagnosed, the the, the more options we have. So, um, we certainly have uh, an antiviral medication that's been around since the early part of the epidemic, Remdesivir. Uh, Again, we want to use that as early as possible. We use various kinds of steroids. Which, which tamp down or reduce the inflammatory process. The, the agent that we use mostly is something called dexamethasone. And then we have these immunomodulators, these, these um, rather fancy agents that, that, that target specific parts of the immune system that, in essence, the virus causes to go haywire and cause all this inflammation. So all of those are options that we can use. And, and really, we focus on people who uh, are either at high risk for severe COVID And those who are already have a a low blood oxygen level Mm -hmm.
2: let's take a little break and we'll be right back with dr john zarlo chief of infectious disease from jefferson
0: today's edition of your radio doctor with dr marianne ritchie presented exclusively by independence blue cross can be enjoyed anytime anywhere at your convenience just download the odyssey app and search your radio doctor it's health education on demand
2: welcome back to your radio doctor. We're here with Dr. John Zarlo talking about how we treat patients who are admitted to the hospital. John, I know that you do not routinely give antibiotics when somebody comes in with COVID pneumonia because it's a virus and you're not seeing bacterial, superimposed bacterial pneumonia, are you, that often with COVID?
0: Certainly not upfront. It's not usual that people come in with acute COVID and a bacterial pneumonia. Occasionally that happens. When we see bacterial infections in general, especially pneumonia, it's in people who've been in the hospital for a while, especially those who make it to the intensive care unit who are on mechanical ventilation, then they are as susceptible as any other patient in that situation to developing these, what we call hospital-acquired infections, bacterial infections.
2: Mm -hmm. And just one last thing. Because of the threat of uh, inflammation inside blood vessels, you pretty much people uh, put people on blood thinners in-house too, yes?
0: Yeah, that's very important. Uh, mm-hmm. I've been neglected to, to talk about that. That's very important. Um, and that's still an ongoing research question of whether we should really fully anticoagulate everybody who gets even moderately ill with COVID versus just sort of a kind of an anticoagulation that will will be a, more of a prophylaxis to prevent it. So uh, COVID, for some reason, does cause a lot of clotting problems.
2: Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the booster because people have been vaccinated. Hopefully, they'll continue to step up to the plate for that. Has it been established? It has, I think, that it's safe to mix and match if you start with one of the RJ J or can you do a booster with the RNA vaccine?
0: You know, I think it, it's it certainly is safe, um, but I, I think we have, you know, data from a variety of studies to suggest that it's certainly effective. And in some cases, it, it appears even more effective if you mix and match than if you use the same uh, dose. I, I don't think we have any hard evidence to support that. I think the most important thing is that I think I think we all need to to get a booster. I think that's the most important thing, whether it's with the same vaccine or a mix and match approach.
2: Mm-hmm. And of course, time will tell. And I always like to put in there, get your flu vaccine because the symptoms can be similar. We don't want to miss one or the other. So if a patient does have symptoms after getting the vaccination or a booster, can you take Advil? Or do you, I know for a short time in the beginning, Advil, uh, there was a thought at my interview with an immune response, but after the vaccine or booster, it's okay, yes?
0: Yeah, because you know, a lot of people who get vaccinated, me included, um, get a lot of pain or inflammation at the site of the uh, of the inoculation. But also, over the next 24 to 36 hours, people can get feverish and, 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 and just feel really, really crappy, headaches and so forth. So I think everyone's guidance is um, that should you develop those kinds of symptoms, you should feel free to take Tylenol or Advil. I think that's fine. I mean, if you think about it with children, who get vaccines, you know, the first thing doctors say, if your child gets fussy or gets feverish, just give them some Tylenol and and, and that should work. There's th- theoretical reasons. We don't want to r- reduce the inflammatory response that we expect from vaccination, but that's purely theoretical. Mm-hmm. I, I think people should feel free to take medication as they need to. Yeah.
2: I have a couple quick questions because I want to spend the rest of the time with your great information about some of the oral drugs that are becoming uh, promising. Does a person with or without symptoms, does that suggest how effective their immune response is? I know with the vaccination first two, uh, I said, gee, my immune system must be dead or asleep or stupid, but I had no no, uh, reaction. The booster, I was a little, pretty uncomfortable, but it went away pretty quickly. Does that reflect any response or is that just random?
0: Yeah, I don't think we have any data that would suggest that the 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 reaction that you get or don't get has any correlation with the effectiveness of the vaccine.
2: Mm-hmm. I think people need to hear that because it worries some people. And then if you've already had COVID, what are the benefits and risks of getting the vaccination? And should they get the single or the double dose?
0: Yeah, that's a very good question. The, the, the answer is we, we certainly seem to to believe that that there's more a more effective immune response if you've had covid to get vaccinated
1: mm-hmm.
0: whether it's one shot or more that's a harder question to answer but i think right now our 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 guidance is that you've had covid you should go ahead with the vaccine process exactly the way it's it, it's laid out and in reality the combination of infection and vaccination really may provide even a more robust Immune response than than either of those two things alone, and and I can assure you, I'm not advocating for people to go and look uh, to to get COVID to boost their immune no. response. Uh, but um, but most certainly, if you've been if you've had COVID, you should get vaccinated.
2: Mm-hmm. So these new oral meds, tell us about those. I know Merck has one, uh, Pfizer has one. Tell us about those, and then the fluvoxamine. Let's start with the. Yeah, I think, they,
0: mm-hmm. I think the, the, the malnupiravir is the Merck product, and that's probably the farthest along in development now. Um, the reality is, was that it was used initially for treatment of hospitalized patients with COVID, and it didn't have much of a signal. And so the reality was that they, they moved toward using it in an outpatient setting early on in the course of infection wh- with the hope of reducing the chances that people will get sick enough to be hospitalized. And the initial data seemed promising, but then with, with a re-look at it, yeah, it has a signal. It seems to be effective. I wish we could see the actual data. We've seen more uh, press releases and, and such, but the FDA has seen the data. And there's a, a, a general consensus, yeah, it probably is is active, but I, I wish it I wish it had a stronger signal, quite frankly.
2: Mm-hmm. But it's authorized in the UK, just not here yet. Is that true? That's, that's correct. That,
0: mm-hmm. That's correct. Yeah.
2: So um, the other, the next drug that comes along is PF, I guess that stands for Pfizer, 07321332, <laughs> um, which is a combination med, right? It's uh, uh, two meds. Why don't you tell us about that?
0: Yeah, it's, this is a medication that works a little bit different in the sense that it blocks uh, a certain enzyme that's important for the virus to fully reproduce itself. Uh, it's called, something called a viral protease. And so, <clears throat> this is a, a kind of a strategy that's been used in other antiviral medicines. For example, classically, in the, some of the HIV medications are so-called protease inhibitors. Now, <clears throat> one of the challenges is that the, the the drug is more is sort of rapidly eliminated by the body. But we use another medication with it, something called ritonavir, that was developed initially as an anti-HIV drug, and and that improves the, the the way the body clears the drug it allows the drug to hang around longer and therefore to be more active mm-hmm. so when people take this the combination of these two medications what the data that we've seen or at least the press release suggests that it's really reasonably effective in fact uh, quite effective in reducing the the, the chances of being hospitalized and, and and dying. Of course, again, it's still relatively early. We haven't seen really all of the hard data, but this, to my mind, seems like the, the most promising agent I've seen so far. So
2: not not unusual. Merck's drug starts with the letter M, like Merck, molnupiravir, hmm. and the Pfizer drug, well, it's yet to be named, well, Paxlovid, isn't that what isn't that what it's called? Um,
0: yeah, that's a trade mm-hmm. name, yeah.
2: So, this enzyme that keeps the virus from replicating or reproducing is a protease, and there are two proteases. One slows the virus, and the other one keeps the uh, first guy working or keeps the concentration elevated. It's fascinating. So we're still waiting for approval for emergency use. So we'll wait and see. But the third drug is an antidepressant. Why don't you tell us about that?
0: Yeah, this is you know we we've, we've everybody's been looking for the off-the-shelf cheap drug that might show some kind of benefit in, in, in keeping people from, from getting sick from COVID. Again, hydroxychloroquine was in that role, ivermectin. But fluvoxamine is an antidepressant medication that has some anti-inflammatory effects. And now we've seen some, a couple of pretty large trials that suggest that indeed it does have some activity in, in, in really, in, in again, keeping people from getting sick, keeping people from uh, being hospitalized... Now, we're still looking at the data, and I'm not quite sure this is ready for so-called prime time, but but it's certainly a fast mover. This is being evaluated very rapidly. And again, it's a commonly used antidepressant medication. It's well known in the sense of side effects, um, and and it should be readily available. So I'm somewhat optimistic that this could be um, an important medication in the, in the treatment of COVID.
2: Well, and just hearing you explain these options and that they're under study is really bringing hope to people, John. Uh, and you explain things clearly and uh, really make people feel better. John, tell us your take on the Omicron variant. I know it uh, seems to be a little less virulent, but...
0: Mm-hmm. It certainly came on us like like out of nowhere. And it seems to be less virulent, But but quite frankly, the data that we have from South Africa is... Is a little bit uh, is really premature because many of the cases that we're seeing in South Africa were among young people who we wouldn't expect would would develop a lot of uh, serious illness. But what we have so far seen is that despite this very rapid rise in, in cases in South Africa from this Omicron variant, the uh, the hospitalizations have really not increased significantly. So we have hope. Now, hope is not a great policy, but it's a hope. That we can uh, that that this this variant may be less virulent.
2: And when people do get the diagnosis of COVID, is it important to distinguish, or how do you distinguish between Delta and Omicron?
0: You know what we, we do sampling in this country and many other countries. We we don't we can't we don't have the 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 feasibility to sample every single positive a COVID test. It's just too expensive and cumbersome. But we do a series of of sampling of various samples in various places. We do it in Philadelphia. It's done all over the country in in a more rapid pace. And and, in this way, we run these every week or so to keep an eye on just what variants are circulating. In our most recent uh, look here, just last week, 100% of the isolates that we've seen here at Jefferson uh, have been Delta. So we're still in the Delta phase. And it remains to be seen whether Omicron will, will overtake Delta.
2: Mm-hmm. So we need to watch it for public health reasons, We have, for all kinds of reasons, the patterns. Let's take a little break, and we'll be fi- here for our final segment with Dr. John Zerlo. And welcome back to our final segment of Your Radio Doctor with Dr. John Zerlo. John, we have about two minutes left. Let's wrap it up with how you'd advise patients to move forward and, and what you think is going to Come in the future.
0: Well, the, the the most important message really is that vaccination is is really the only the only real uh, option. It's the best option we have. Uh, I'd like to tell you that we have we we we've, we've defined exactly what we need to do with vaccines, with exactly what the schedule, how often they need to be used. But remember, we had to rush this along, so we just have to keep uh, keep moving. We think boosters are very important for the entire population. As to where we're going right now, it's going to be very hard to tell. I, I've, I've tried to predict where COVID is going um, over the last year and a half, and each time it looks like we're, we're coming out of it, suddenly we're back into it again, and uh, it's been obviously a very challenging problem. And uh, so, I mean, at some point it will become uh, what we would call an endemic problem, that it'll fade into the, the you know, the group of uh, respiratory infections that we see on a yearly basis, Um, So when that will happen and how that will happen is is very, very, very difficult to know. Um, So it's been certainly a humbling experience.
2: And I think humbling is the right word. And I've heard you say more than once. I will say uh, when you have uh, town hall meetings at Jeff and keep us informed and keep us hopeful, it has been wonderful to have you leading the charge. Um, And as I said earlier with your message that you're sharing with our listeners, the same thing. You're keeping us up to date. But one of the things I admire about you is that you say, we just don't know. And I think that would be so helpful. We want to assure people that we're, we've we learned from other viruses or from HIV and other immune system effects. But um, I think it's important to say to people, we just don't know everything, but we're working to our max. And thank you for that. And thanks for being our guest today, John.
0: Happy to be here.
2: And now for Your World Champion, I call this segment, The Salvation Army. When you hear the words Salvation Army, what comes to mind? Maybe a courier and Ives image. Just before Christmas, snowflakes falling, a woman wearing a cape is gently ringing a bell, a man playing holiday music on a trumpet thanking people as they place a donation in the red kettle outside the local supermarket or in the town square. The Salvation Army has been depicted in similar scenes in over 500 Hollywood movies. These scenes portray beautiful images of caring and devotion, but don't come close to explaining the vast scope of their ministry. Nor do most people know that the Salvation Army is the evangelical part of the universal Christian church. 1852, a British minister named William Booth decided to take the gospel away from the pulpit and bring it right to the streets of London, preaching to the poor, the homeless, and destitute. He and his wife Catherine trained other evangelists who joined their fight for the souls of lost men and women. People from all walks—thieves, gamblers, prostitutes—joined in the preaching mission, and by 1878, the Salvation Army was born. Today, the mission reaches every corner of the globe, 131 countries offering the message of God's healing and hope to those in need. Commissioned officers undergo intensive training at Salvation Army Colleges and serve as administrators, teachers, social workers, counselors, youth leaders, musicians. Lay members are called soldiers and volunteers play a crucial role and they're known as the Army behind the Army. Together, these 1.8 million members serve almost 30 million Americans a year. We turn to the story of Major Tawny Cowan Zanders. The Salvation Army was her family's church when she was a small girl. She helped in soup kitchens, folding napkins, scooping out food, wiping tables, or just talking to needy visitors. At nursing homes, she'd visit the lonely elderly or bring them little treats. These early experiences left a permanent imprint on her heart. She went to college wanting a career in public relations. Her focus in interdisciplinary social science Brought opportunities to study in Russia and Belize. Each encounter with a person from another land convinced her that many more things unite us than divide us. Major Tawney welcomes the chance to combine her faith and her commitment to social justice. She strengthened her foundation with a master's degree in nonprofit studies, then she and her husband entered the Salvation Army Seminary and were ordained in 2005. At her first assignment in Massillon, Ohio, she completed a $3.4 million campaign for a family life center. Then in Toledo, Ohio, she was the associate area coordinator for five counties. Since coming to Philadelphia in 2015, she's led the army at the Ray and Joan Crop Corps Community Center, where 7,500 members seek to improve their physical, mental, social, and spiritual health through the countless community programs. This born leader is now the Divisional Secretary for Greater Philadelphia, overseeing operations across the city and beyond, including worship and service centers, emergency housing, senior housing, an intensive anti-human trafficking program, and multiple educational and case management programs for adults and children. Major Tawney is most fulfilled when she can look at a needy person in Kensington or West Philadelphia and say, we're walking with you. Her work is especially meaningful at this time, when the pandemic has added even more layers of stress for people in general and those already living on the edge. So the next time you're leaving the supermarket with all those goodies, think of the people who can't fill a shopping basket. Remember the beautiful work of Major Tawney and the Salvation Army to build communities, change lives, and restore hope. Give a few dollars to that soldier standing in the cold. We salute you, Major Tawny Cowan-Zanders, your real champion. Friends, volunteers make the work of the Salvation Army possible. Share your dollars or your skills. Visit the website safilly.org, that's SalvationArmyPhilly.org, or call 215-787-2800. A special thank you to our exclusive sponsor, Independence Blue Cross, and from support from Recovery Centers of America and Rothman Orthopedics. Can't wait to launch our third year starting in February. Lots of new changes. Next week, our topic is depression during the holidays, especially with the pandemic. Thank you for joining us today. Invite a friend to listen. All of our shows are posted on yourradiodoctor.com. Follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. Okay, I wrote my letter to Santa, and I know it's supposed to be private, but the only thing I ask for is the complete collection of everything Frank Sinatra ever sang for all of eternity. Now stay right here for the sounds of Sinatra, and you'll know why. This is your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, wishing you a wonderful and safe week. Always here to remind you that your health is your wealth.
0: Thanks for listening to your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, a Jacob Media production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Kraus at 267-261-3428. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. Today's program has been pre recorded.